Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, For I want you to know how greatly I strive for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged as they are knit together in love, to have all the riches of assured understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with beguiling speech. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. As therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. I'd like you to imagine with me for a moment that you are in a city that is surrounded by an enemy. And the intention of this enemy is to break through the the city borders and to destroy you. And you know that there are enemy sympathizers in the city that are in collusion with the enemy and doing everything they can to make it easy for the enemy to break in. And suppose that there is a song. And when this song comes upon your lips, the enemy cannot tolerate it, but falls back and goes the other direction. If that were the case, wouldn't it be true that you would do anything you could to learn this song? You would sing it when you went to bed at night. You'd sing it when you got up in the morning. You'd put on a tape recorder. Especially when you walked out among strangers, you'd sing it and hum it. And as the song seeped down into your subconscious and you became very bold with that song, you'd walk right out of the town on your way to another village and go right through the enemy lines and watch them fall back. And other people would see you singing this song and they'd hear the song and they'd learn the song. And then more people would sing the song and the enemy would be defeated. Well, we do have an enemy outside the city of our souls called Satan. The father of lies, Jesus called him. His tactics are deceit and delusion. And his aim is the destruction of your faith. And we do have enemy sympathizers within the desires of the flesh and the lusts of the old self that love to do whatever they can to make the access of Satan easy. And there is a song that when you take it upon your lips, And harbor it in your heart. Satan falls back. And it is the song of thanks. You can guard yourself with gratitude. And what I want to do this morning is persuade you that God has appointed gratitude as a guardian for your soul against all manner of evil. 
Let's pray together to ask that He would help us see these things. Lord, I have been so deeply apprised recently, especially this morning early, that while the preaching of the Word is the instrument of regeneration and of edification, it is not so without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Both in my heart and in the hearts of those who hear. And so I plead, Holy Spirit, that through Jesus Christ, His great worth, you would come. Come, Holy Spirit, and anoint the preaching of this word and open the hearts of all who hear. That some might be born again and that all might be built up in the faith and guarded from the devil. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now here's what I'd like to do. Briefly give an exposition of verses 1 to 8 of Colossians 2 and then confirm the main point with a text from Romans 1 and then give two practical applications one from Colossians, one from Ephesians. Let's go. Look at chapter 2, Colossians. For I want you to know how greatly I strive for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face. What does he mean, striving for you? Goodness, they're hundreds of miles away. He's in jail according to chapter 4. In what sense is he striving? Well, I thought of three possible things. More than likely, it means a struggle in prayer. Wrestling in prayer, since he uses the same word of Epaphroditus, wrestling in prayer in chapter 4. You picture him late at night in the jail, thinking of his churches and wrestling, keeping himself awake, pushing the food aside that they brought him and fasting for the saints. Possibly he means writing this letter. Not easy to compose a sermon which is what this letter is, in dank conditions or even in the best of prison conditions. Or possibly he means third, equipping Tychicus and Onesimus whom he is sending to them with this letter, trying to wrestle with them and to equip them so that they'll make the right impact in Colossae and Laodicea when they deliver the letter. Whatever. He's wrestling. He's struggling. He's suffering for them. And he tells them he wants to make it known to them. Why? Well, that's verse 2. Evidently, he thinks that if they know about it, that if they're not ignorant of it, their hearts, says, that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, how does that work? What's the connection between their learning that Paul, way off there in Rome, is suffering for them and their becoming encouraged? How does that work? What's the connection? Well, I think that's what verse 2 and 3 are all about. Spelling out how this works. So let's, let's look at it. That their hearts may be encouraged as they are knit together in love. It's going to happen, evidently, through a knitting together. So this is what seems to be in Paul's mind. If I can just tell them 
how much I love them, then their hearts are going to be knit together with mine and with each other in love. It's like a quilt. And uh, everybody in the church is a little piece of cloth. We're all different colors and sizes, shapes. And Paul wants to take all these hearts and uh, make a quilt. That's very attractive, very beautiful. And the thread he uses is love. Knit together with love. So he's, he's about, in this letter, making a quilt. But this quilt's a very unusual quilt. You would think, well, the response of a people who are being knit together in love would be intensified affections for each other. And that's not what he focuses on. Look what it leads to. What happens when their hearts get knit together in love? In verse 2. Well, he proceeds and says that they might be encouraged being knit together in love unto or that they might have riches of assured understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all very heady. Isn't that interesting that, that the upshot, the result, the outgrowth of hearts knit together in love is assured understanding. This is very important for you to see this connection here. One of the most amazing things about Christianity is that the deepest, most profound, most valuable truths or insights into the character and the ways of God come into heads that are firmly attached to loving hearts. Loving is the pathway to insight. Not just thinking. Many people make a mistake here and handle doctrine wrong. Namely, handle it in heads that have no passionate hearts of love for friend or enemy. That's all wrong. Tom Steller is a good example of this. He teaches a course called Leadership Training Through Theological Reflection. And in that course, they deal with the most heavy, heady doctrinal issues you could get out of the Bible. But Tom told us in the fall, as he was gearing up to start another sequence of these courses, that he's persuaded now that the only right way to teach this class of weighty doctrinal material is in a setting of 10 or 12 people who not only share their ideas, but their lives. And so an hour or so of that two-hour class each week is devoted to the sharing of hearts. And an hour is devoted to the sharing of insight and doctrine and theology. And he's right. Because verse 2 says very plainly that Paul's desire is that encouragement come through the knitting together of hearts in love that leads to understanding, assured, heartily felt, deep insight. So if you want to grow in your understanding, be your brother's keeper. 
Theology is a holy science. And its riches are hidden from unholy people. Now remember, all of this is intended to encourage the people. That's the goal. So here's the sequence that I see. He shows them his struggle of love for them. He hopes that it will knit their hearts together with his in a fabric of love. He hopes that out of this fabric of love there emerges fully assured understanding of the mystery of God and the treasures of Christ's wisdom. And he hopes that out of that comes strong encouragement. Now why? What's really the front burner issue for Paul? That's given in verse 4. I say this to you. That is, I've, I've said verses 1 to 3 in order that no one may delude you with beguiling speech. So you see what his immediate concern is? There's some beguilers. There's some misleaders. There's some false teachers abroad in the churches of, of Colossae and Laodicea. And Paul is in the business of guarding the hearts of his converts from this uh, false teaching. So how does he do it? Let's just summarize now. Step one, he draws attention to his sacrificial love for them, which he hopes will lead, secondly, to their being knit together in love with him and with each other, which will lead, thirdly, to assured and firmly held understanding and knowledge of the mystery of God and the treasures of the wisdom of Christ, which will lead, fourthly, to strong encouragement, which will lead, fifthly, to freedom from delusion. Okay, you got it? That's the argument of verses 1 through 4. And we've almost arrived at the main point, but not quite. Verse 5 is not the main point. It is sort of the most basic argument. He says, For though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, I focus in that verse right in on the statement, I'm so happy when I hear about your firmness in the faith. And he said, well, why do you say that? And the answer is, he's giving the bottom line reason why he's so passionately caught up with their freedom from delusion. Why does he care so much? about whether they're deluded, answer is, their firmness is his joy. He says it again and again in his letters. The faith of my people is my joy, my crown, my hope. I live for the faith of these people. Now, verses 6 through 8 correspond, I think, with verses 2 through 4. And you can see this if you... Compare verses 4 and 8. Let's read verse 8 first. See to it that no one make a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Now, what's that? that that's a warning against being deceived. Well, that's what verse 4 was. Verse 4 says... I say this in order that no one may delude you with beguiling speech. So verse 4 and verse 8 say the same thing. Verse 8 is just an expansion. Now that would suggest to me that perhaps verses 6 and 7, which lead into verse 8, 
fulfill the same function as verses 2 and 3, which lead into verse 4. Let's see if that's the case. Let's read verses 6 and 7. As therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now there are four steps, four chronological steps in those two verses. Let's look at those. First, they were taught something. See that at the end of verse 7? Just as you were taught. Then secondly, they received Christ who was taught to them. They received him. Verse 6, as therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Third, they became rooted and built up in this Christ whom they had received. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And then fourth, the fourth step is that all of this was to lead to a certain kind of life. See that at the uh, end of verse 6? So live or so walk in him. And then if you ask, well, what kind of life? What characterizes this life? The end of verse 7 says, abounding in thanksgiving. Now let's compare those two verses with verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 said... I want so much for you to have assured understanding that would give rise to encouragement that would free you from delusion in verse 4. And then verses 6 and 7 says, I want you to be firmly grounded and rooted in Christ so that you would abound in thanksgiving so that you would be freed from the delusion in verse 8. Now, if you were to ask me, well, what's the connection between the guardian of encouragement that is focused on in verse 2 and the guardian of gratitude which is focused on in verse 7 I would answer gratitude completes and purifies encouragement you see you can be encouraged in an ungodly way even by God You've all had this experience. You're feeling depressed, discouraged. And then all of a sudden, circumstances turn. You get a letter in the mail, unexpected, or somebody smiles, or you get news from afar. Or just something happens, and you sometimes can't explain it. And the clouds get blown away, the sky is blue, the birds are singing, you feel great. And you walk on your way and don't even lift your eyes to heaven to say one word of thanks. But, oh, you're encouraged. It's an ungodly encouragement. A gift of God. Ungodly received. And surely that's not what he's talking about in verse 2. That we would somehow be preserved from delusion by an ungodly encouragement. Surely he means an encouragement that is capped off and completed with gratitude. So that he draws it out in verse 7. And says the life that is going to be free from delusion is a life abounding in gratitude. And thanksgiving. So, my conclusion now. Here's the main point as I see it. God has appointed that His people be protected from the delusion of verse 4 and the delusion of verse 8 by gratitude. A heart full of 
thanksgiving. So there is a song that when you sing it, Satan is repulsed. If you don't sing it, he's on his way into the citadel of your heart. And all the desires of the flesh will get the upper hand. And they will fling the doors wide to Satan and welcome him in. And he will blind you. And pretty soon you will be incapable of seeing anything to give thanks for. Guard yourselves with gratitude. That's the main point. Now, let's see if we can confirm that from Romans 1, verse 21. So I invite you to turn there, if you like, to Romans chapter 1. Verse 21, and here Paul is accusing people who have seen evidences of God's power and deity and have not honored him by giving him thanks. What happens to those people? Let's read verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But what happened? They became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. If you don't thank God in your heart, you are set out and vulnerable to the blinding work of Satan. Gratitude is the guardian of the lamp of the soul. If the guardian dies, the lamp will go out. Guard yourselves with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Now let's apply it. Turn with me back to Colossians. I'll apply it first to your life of prayer, and then second to your life of conversation. Colossians chapter 4, a very brief verse, which I wish the New International Version hadn't botched the way they did. I'll read it to you literally, and all of you New International Version people will, I hope, check with some others to see if I'm telling the truth. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with or by thanksgiving. You miss that in the New International Version, and that's crucial, at least it's crucial for my point this morning, to point out that the instrument, the weapon, with which we are vigilant and watchful and alert is thanksgiving. It's not just and thanksgiving, it's with or by thanksgiving that, that we are watchful and alert. Now, you know those two words from another familiar story, don't you? Watch and pray. The Gethsemane. Jesus comes back to the disciples and they're asleep. He wakes them up and says, watch and pray. Same two words you've got here. Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And now Colossians 4.2 says one of the ways, one of the indispensable ways that you watch vigilantly against temptation is by filling your heart and your lips with gratitude. Satan can't get you 
The image came to my mind yesterday as I was working on this, that as Satan deploys his demonic forces in the world, he says to them, now all of you sub-devils, don't focus your attention on prayerless Christians. They can do no harm. Focus your energies on praying Christians. Whatever you do, stop that praying. Because, of course, he knows that when Christians go to their knees in prayer, they tap into a power that turns Satan into a hopeless little opponent. Stop that praying. So, here's what happens. When you go on to your face before God, you put your knee into a bee's nest of evil. That's the image I have. Every time you kneel to pray, your knee goes right into a big bee's nest of evil. And they just swarm out. And they're after you with distraction. Oh, look, the Venetian blind is not quite right. I'll get up and go fix the Venetian blind. <laughs> Success will be. Bing. And they discourage you. And they diminish your faith. And Paul writes this word in Colossians 4 to it. says, there's a net, there's a net. Throw the net, quick. And what is it? Be watchful with thanksgiving. Cover yourself. Put the net of gratitude over your head. They can buzz all they want, and they will not get you. Guard yourselves with thanksgiving. Now let's apply it to one other area of life, your conversation. Turn with me, if you want to, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Here Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor silly talk, nor levity, which are not fitting, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So the question this, this text forces us to ask is, how are you going to guard your mouth from foulness and frivolousness. Those are the two things addressed in the verse, right? Foulness and frivolousness. They're not fitting in the mouth of a believer. What are you going to do? You, you, you answer it to your own self now. What do you do to keep your mouth free from criticism, bitterness, Blaming, defensiveness, disparagement, complaining, sarcasm, disrespect, ridicule, cynicism. What's your strategy? Or, the other question, what do you do to keep your mouth free from flippancy, triviality, silly talk, pettiness? Well, the answer to those two questions is the same, and it's given right at the end of the verse. 
fill your mouth with thanksgiving and the others won't get in. Now let me, let me apply this to some situations you'll find yourself in today before this day's over. You'll go home for lunch today or go out to eat. You'll be with somebody before this week's over. And when you get together in a group, if the first thing that's said, I hope it's not you, is he didn't finish his sermon until 12.08. He's always going overtime. It'll be downhill from there in your conversation. It'll be a lot of muck out on the dinner table. And you'll end up muckraking the whole time. But if the first thing that's said when you get together, and I hope it is you this time, is, isn't God good to give us four healthy little children at Bethlehem? Oh, God's been so good to us. The air around that table will be so clean. Everybody will just feel clean and right and good. And that meal won't easily degenerate into muckrake. If you want to be a cleaner up of mouths, fill your own with gratitude and speak it to people. And they will feel very awkward then coming in with dirt after that. Just keep it going. It's just wonderful when people initiate conversations with gratitude. Second thing, and this is this is the end. I, I'm shooting for 1208. Suppose somebody says to me now, oh, you talk about getting triviality and pettiness out of your mouth and flippancy, but I'm just an ordinary person. I don't have any real profound thoughts. My intellect isn't, you know, college material even. So I don't see how I can get flippancy and triviality out of my mouth. Look, there is no necessary correlation between intelligence and earnestness or lack of it and flippancy. For example, I went to Wheaton with a couple of geniuses and those guys for four years, I don't think, said in my presence one earnest thing. Everything was Flippant. Everything was trivial. Everything was innuendo and repartee and posturing. And I often wondered, is there any person behind that face that cares about anything? And they aced every test. Geniuses. Trivial genius. It's disgusting. It's tragic. On the other hand, let me, let me answer the question. You say, well, what can I do? I'm just an ordinary person with no profound insights and I don't want to be guilty of pettiness and triviality and flippancy. What should I do? I'll tell you exactly what to do this afternoon or later. The next time you meet with family or with a friend and the radio is off, or the TV is off. You look them right in the eye 
and without making any little joke to lessen the intensity of the moment, you say, I thank God for you. The mood of that moment will be light years separated from flippancy. And it doesn't even take a high school diploma. It takes humility. And that's why gratitude guards the soul. And so, this morning... Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Receive the free treasures of grace that are in Jesus Christ. Fill your mouth with thanksgiving to Him and to each other. And guard yourselves with gratitude.